I think the the interesting thing that I wanted to get into with you is is obviously we chatted a little bit about this on the phone is BFR it's pretty well established that there's some some benefits there while training at a low intensity uh whether that's you know strictly with endurance training or in in I think more of your focus would be resistance training uh but some of your work has been done looking at the potential benefits of applying BFR under higher loads which is something that's I think very rarely explored and probably we'll learn a lot more over the next decade in terms of what the benefits Absolutely. are, if any. Uh, but I just wanted to start by asking where the initial kind of curiosity came from to, to kind of explore that. So, yeah, my, uh, in general, and I think we had elaborated on this, uh, when, during our phone call a little bit, um, what got me into BFR to begin with was working with a undergraduate, actually. Um, I, I had an undergraduate research assistant who wanted to do a project on BFR. I didn't really know much about it. So I started diving into it, you know, really dove into the literature to read all that I could about it um, and come up with potential, you know, future research. Because honestly, it seemed like a really neat mechanism. It was something I was largely unfamiliar with. Um, and that was years and years ago at this point. But um what kind of drove me towards this high intensity resistance exercise is, um, you know, the number one, the, the, the low intensity resistance exercise with BFR, lots of the mechanisms already uncovered, um, lots of the, um, the overall applied aspects of it have already been covered by other labs. And I wanted to do something that was a little more of a novel approach, uh, first and foremost. And to kind of mentally determine whether or not there is even any validity there, um, one of the things I had to do is search the literature and see, okay, well, how would this potentially work, right? And, with, well, with high-intensity resistance exercise, what kind of got me down this route to begin with, right? There's, um, you know, all, all sorts of things that are happening in the muscle tissue when you're doing a high load, right, that would induce hypertrophy. We all know that, you know, according to ACSM and SCA guidelines, resistance loads greater than 65% of 1RM pretty much, you know, suggested for inducing hypertrophy, right? And so from there... Um, my thought is, okay, well, when you have those high-intensity loads, you're not doing a whole ton of reps, right? We're talking about maybe 5, 10 reps, give or take, depending on the load. So with that, you are having tons of mechanical transduction, mechanotransduction signaling that would cause increased protein synthesis, um, enhanced muscular damage, things like that, that would help induce protein synthesis, though that muscular damage aspect is kind of up for debate, right? Like how much muscular damage is good, is muscular damage required, so on and so forth. But the metabolic stress aspect of it, uh, the high, you know, high level of lactate production, you definitely produce lactate. It's there, but you're not occluding it. It's being cleared very rapidly. It's not staying in the tissue, while BFR doesn't really, you know, especially, I've done research already myself showing acute bouts of exercise um, with BFR. BFR is not enhancing any markers of muscle damage. I know that's kind of debated in the literature too, right? Some people show that BFR does increase muscle damage. Some show that it does not. I'm on the aspect where none of my research so far has shown any increase in muscle damage um, compared to control conditions, right? That control just standard exercise training. So with that being said, right, at least as far as I'm concerned, it's not really enhancing muscular damage or anything like that. We know that it works through accumulation of metabolic stress, and it works through induction of hypoxia, right? So low oxygen content, you're shutting off perfusion of the tissue, arterial inflow is reduced with most BFR devices, right? Most BFR, you're looking at especially lower limb, 80% LOP, right, or aortic occlusion pressure if you're going by that. But um, with that being said, they're working through separate mechanisms to enhance protein synthesis. 
And so my thought is potentially there could be some synergy there, right? So if they're both inducing protein synthesis through different means, different receptors signaling, ultimately, again, both pathways can activate things like mTOR and its downstream S6 kinase and things like that to increase, you know, translational capacity. There's a lot of research out there now showing that mTOR, for example, is increasing transcription as well, gene transcription of a few different genes and things like that associated with hypertrophy. But the other thing that I was thinking of as well with this, you know, higher level of hypoxia and higher level of metabolic stress, these are factors you see during cardio that tend to also enhance, you know, um, things like mitochondrial density, things of that nature, right? So mitochondrial density, angiogenesis, things that you typically don't see a ton of with your heavy resistance exercise. So my thought is looking at all this to see, hey, what potential benefits could there be from combining these two factors? Is it going to enhance hypertrophy? Are we going to see the same hypertrophy, but we'll have greater mitochondrial density, greater markers of angiogenesis, things like that to overall enhance the effect of exercise? Makes a lot of sense. So if I'm, ooh, I'm getting a bit of an echo back there. I just disappeared. Um, If I'm tracking correctly, we've got, so... And we've done a bit of educational content around this, sort of like the the known mechanisms of our stimuli of hypertrophy. Uh, you know, it's, you just touched on on all of them. We've got mechanical tension, uh, metabolic stress, and potentially damage. Like uh, we, I t- tend to push that one aside in the in the primary conversation because yeah, it's right. so TBD. <laughs> it's so debated right now, right? Exactly. <laughs> and and so so you're saying that your kind of working model was okay. We know that that if we're training it, you know, your lower yeah, sets of you know, three to 10, maybe three to six, we're kind of, if we're on a spectrum, we're really far on that mechanical tension side of the spectrum. And if we're doing a set of 30 under BFR, we're really far on the mechanical, uh, the metabolic stress portion. And you're saying, is there some synergy between getting, uh, maxing out as much as we can metabolic stress and mechanical tension at once by training heavy with BFR? Absolutely. And that's what most of my thought process is behind why I'm doing Uh, why I'm doing that type of research and that line of research. And when you're talking about practicality, most people who are avid weight trainers, weightlifters, they're not doing sets of 30 repetitions, right? That when I look at what BFR has traditionally been used for, yeah, I mean, you can use it if, if you're trying to spare your joints and things like that. But, you know, I think the research is still not very conclusive on how that's affecting, you know, muscle mass increase versus bone mineral density, right? Is that going to make you more prone to musculoskeletal injury? Something like something of that nature, while you know enhancing both at the same time potentially. Right, we're moving out of that clinical aspect and more towards your practical application of people in strength and conditioning. Right, okay, well let's maximize strength and performance. Right, be it you know any aspect of it, anaerobic performance, overall strength, overall endurance capacity, while improving strength. So I feel like there's multiple facets to it that could potentially benefit from the addition of BFR. Can you break down so? I guess this is going to be a tall order, but can you break down a bit? You talked a bit about the kind of signaling process that happens. What you mentioned mechanotransduction. Can you break down mechanotransduction, I guess, in simple terms, very tall order as far as what happens? So we we have mechanical stress uh, from, from lifting, from resistance training. What is the process that goes from there to our body decides to put on muscle decides like it's not a, a, a conscious being, but yeah. Yeah, so with mechanotransduction, one of the major concepts with that is not necessarily the induction of mechanical damage, right? With mechanotransduction, we're just looking at this force transmission across the sarcolemma, right? Across the cell membrane of the muscle fiber. And with this, this 
force transmission is causing activation of receptors that are either sarcolemmal bound or somewhere within the actual muscle fiber itself, right within the within the sarcomeric structure potentially. Um, there's again proteins that we don't know about, right? So who knows at this point? Um, the I know the full mechanism of mechanotransduction. And I mean, the multiple layers of it, potential different proteins that get signaled with it are still largely, you know, unknown. But we know several different receptors that are membrane bound or cytoskeletal bound that sense this tension. And what happens is that protein becomes activated and then that activates another protein and activates another protein, which ultimately leads to an increase in gene transcription. Right. So with the, the production of um the production of gene sequences, turning on gene sequences that are going to ultimately help increase the amount of contractile machinery in the muscle, right? So the myosin, the actin, things like that, your filaments, your cytoskeletal structure, things like that that will be increased as a result of that signaling mechanism. So ultimately enhancing protein synthesis is what we're looking at there, right? Yeah. So that, that's kind of the overview of mechanotransduction is the ability to stimulate all that through just that application of mechanical stress and mechanical the tension on the circulum or cell wall uh, that's sort of detected by these receptors. And then there's downstream communication like, hey, let's put on some muscle in simple Basically. terms. Basically. And now, so that's that's one route. And then we were just touching on the metabolic stress portion. Is There's similar processes that would go into place. Uh, metabolic stress can lead to muscle growth potentially through different channels. Yes, absolutely. So... Um, be it um, extreme production of, you know, lactic acid, changing pH, things like that, um, high, high rates of metabolism where you're producing reactive oxygen species, um, uh, and other various factors associated with this, right? All of these factors are creating, again, cell signaling mechanisms that ultimately say, hey, you know, we're under, we're under this type of stress, let's build muscle, right? And a lot of times, depending on what that signal is, it can signal for hypertrophy or can signal for angiogenesis, growth of new blood vessels and um, enhanced mitochondrial density through a process we call mitochondrial biogenesis. And so depending on what it is that we're stimulating, again, that's, that's why I think there's potentially benefit there between BFR and high intensity resistance exercise. Maybe you'll get the best of both worlds. And again, I think the research at this point is inconclusive. So I'm just starting to dive into the yeah. kind of longitudinal design studies, right? I wanted to see if there was anything acutely there to even waste my time with it, right? And now I'm kind of diving into the longitudinal side, the longitudinal side studies to try to get those going to see if anything's changing. So with the hope of kind of, you know, assuming this, this, uh, there is, there's merit for this, we're, we're tapping into the, maybe the upper end range of the benefits from mechanical tension and metabolic stress in one session. You looked at this in your 2020 paper. So I wrote the name down cause I don't want to forget it, but obviously BFR at high resistance loads, we'll, we'll link it in the yeah. description, but can you walk us through just like the study design, a bit of that paper, um, and what you guys were doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So that study, uh, what we did is because at that point there was really nothing on high intensity resistance exercise, at least to the best of my knowledge, right? There's so many thousands and thousands, millions of papers out there, you know, thousands on BFR at this point that I'm like, I couldn't possibly sift through all the literature, but I have not found really, especially at that point, anything really on high intensity. So basically what we did is a kind of simple design. We were exercising a lot of caution where we were having people, this is kind of the first study I did on high intensity where had them do acute bouts of resistance exercise, right? So um, 
uh, basically squats at 70% of 1RM. If I'm thinking, again, this was published in 2020, which means I had done it like two years before that. I think it's somewhere in that ballpark, but um, around 70% of 1RM, 75% of 1RM. And we were having them uh, basically do, if I remember, it's three sets of 11 reps, something like that, um, for, for each set with or without BFR. And in this case, BFR, we had on just one limb, on their dominant limb, Again, trying to exercise a little bit of caution here because there wasn't a lot of data out there. The last thing I want to do is bring somebody in, have them do maximal squats and they are like high intensity squats, bilateral occlusion and have my first participant pass out, have a head injury or something like I, I didn't want to chance that. Right. So I'm baby stepping it with this. So have them do that. And what well, basically what we found is um, with with ultimately when we we're comparing the with BFR to without BFR, same protocol. Right. Um, with just this kind of intermittent blood flow occlusion. We are finding um, slight increases um, in uh, like kind of trends for increased myoglobin in IL-6, but they, they weren't really different, right? Um, kind of suggesting that, hey, you know, maybe something's there, but we did a like very light protocol. Again, minimal BFR occlusion. It was only during the sets. Um, we basically, we, we deflated to help out the participant a little bit, trying to exercise caution, and it was only on one limb, right? So probably not going to see a whole lot, but there was this kind of definite trend towards that. Um, but what we did see is just higher, we did see higher pain rating. Unfortunately, it's right, you're talking about metabolic stress buildup. It's just painful. Anybody who's done BFR, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. That's why it's worth it to see if it has any benefit, right? Um, but then that we did, we did see a kind of high rate of fatigue, right? We saw that these people were becoming fatigued much more rapidly. They weren't able to complete all of their sets, things like that. Um, so it's just this kind of good intro paper that I had. It was in JSCR to uh, kind of get the ball rolling with this high-intensity resistance exercise. And I've kind of followed up with more advanced protocols since then. So you're, you're looking at BFR cuff on one leg versus no BFR at all, or... Am I tracking oh, so, correctly? Yeah. Okay. So BFR during the exercise on one leg versus the other session. So it was an acute study, right? They came in. We tested their – sorry, I, I didn't elaborate on that. We tested their one rep max first during a session, um, had them come back, if I recall, like a week later or 72 hours later or something like that. Again, I don't remember exactly. It's been a hot minute. Um, but then um, they would come back in. Then they would be randomized to either BFR, that BFR protocol, or the same protocol without BFR. So just control condition. Um, and just that way we can, again, it's repeated measures, designs, the same people. Theoretically, you shouldn't see any change unless it's a valid one, right? So that that's kind of why we took that approach and that study design. Gotcha. Okay. And you said you've done similar work more recent, maybe the more top of mind? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of my graduate students, it was a project we did for his dissertation. He um, And we, we just got this published um, actually a few days ago um, at International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Um, and we, we basically did a similar study design, but again, we stepped it up a notch. Bilateral blood flow occlusion during the entire exercise, uh, sorry, during the entire first two sets, including rest period, 80% limb occlusion pressure. They were doing 75% of their 1RM back squats. Um, and then we deflated between the second and third sets because kind of that recommended time frame is around six to eight minutes of occlusion. And we were verging on, if we went into that third set, right, we verging on that time frame. And we're like, all right, we, we again, trying to exercise a little bit of caution here. 
And so then we reinflated before that third and fourth set and um, had it inflated throughout the entire time, deflated it, and then um, uh, basically took lactate measures, post-performance measures, uh, did a blood draw so we could measure interleukin-6, myoglobin, myoglobin for, um, for muscle damage, things like that, um, one hour post. Um, so we, we were looking at some of that stuff as well, um, as money permitted. Um, but with, the, uh, with this protocol, what we did differently is, again, we had bilateral blood flow occlusion. And I, I honestly, I did not realize that the results would be this completely different as far as performance. But we basically did four sets of, you know, barbell back squats at 75% of one RM each set until failure. And what you could see is kind of, kind of crazy, right? First set, almost identical control. BFR, not really anything different. Second set, the BFR, BFR trial just plummeted, mm. like absolutely no performance, right? And I don't know, and again, we don't know the exact mechanism of that yet. Right now, the thought is kind of like maybe um, signaling via group three, group four afferents to, uh, you know, induce central fatigue, things of that nature, something like that to kind of just shut it down. And, you know, there's also study out there, studies out there showing that accumulation of metabolic stress can cause, you know, peripheral fatigue as well, right? Fatigue directly in the musculature, sure. reduce motor unit recruitment, things like that. So we didn't test that mechanism. We don't know exactly. But um, with this, one of the things that we saw is ultimately after all four sets during the BFR trial, less than half of the amount of work was produced, right? They fatigued so rapidly with this protocol. even at, So what you saw is like this dip from first set to second set, and then once we deflated, they came back on that third set and performed almost as well on the third set as they did during the control condition. Interesting. But then on that fourth set, like I saw participants literally walk up to the bar, unrack it, and just fall straight to the ground because they couldn't do it. Or just start to bend like, I can't do it. Like, I can't contract. I'm like, all right, that's, you know, it's stuff that you just, until you see it, it's like. Wow, that's that's crazy, right? It's shutting down everything neurological or something, right? We again, we don't know the exact uh, details because I didn't test it, so I'm just kind of postulating here. But um, half the amount of work. But what we did see, interleukin six was increased even more in BFR with half the amount of work than what we see in control. So 50% of the repetitions with, and it was, I don't remember the exact value, but it was, it was this. P, you know, P value of less than 0.05, right? I mean, greater than point oh yeah, less than 0.05 um, to cause, uh, to make it a statistically significant increase in interleukin-6 mm. in the in the plasma of one hour post-exercise. Um, myoglobin, there was no difference, so it did not enhance muscular damage, but of course it was the same, right? And so half the amount of work, same muscle damage, again, that's not really... You know, telling us a whole lot. So I have another study kind of building off this right now. Um, but we did see also lactate values were almost identical. Um, after deflation of the cuff, we allowed the blood to circulate for a couple minutes, so we did lactate. Blood lactate was, even with half the amount of work, was the same with BFR during high intensity as control was, even though they did twice the amount of repetitions. Right. So to me, it's kind of indicating that, yes, there is enhanced metabolic stress, enhanced inflammation. And IL-6 has all kinds of ramifications, right? Interleukin-6, uh, um, it's a inflammatory cytokine. And again, depending on how it's produced, it can be pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory. But we do know IL-6 has major roles when it comes to activation of satellite cells for 
um, growth, hypertrophy, things like that when it comes to other signaling immune cells, things like that to come in and repair and go through all these processes, right? So it's, to me, it was a pretty cool finding. I, I was kind of pleased to, pleased with that. Um, but the one thing we did find is post-exercise recovery, two minutes out, they were the, they were the same, right? There was no real discrepancy. BFR was not any more fatigued than control. It's, just, it's definitely an acute effect, which makes me think that it's really not causing any enhanced muscle damage, things like that. But time will tell. We've got another study going on, kind of building off of that, uh, right? Because, like I said, half the amount of work, now I'm trying to volume match. See, like, same study, got it currently going on. See, okay, if we design a study, high intensity, so on and so forth, um, with, with the same exact protocol, something we know you can complete with BFR on, um, we're looking at the results there, kind of same, same study, but different different protocol, right? Um, so far, the results are very compelling. Uh, I'll state that uh, in, in BFR's favor um, with this acute study. Interesting. So so comparing, you know, your, your non-BFR and BFR, you saw roughly equivalent IL-6 or interleukin-6 inflammatory cytokine, um, myoglobin as well, marker, potential marker of muscle damage, fairly or non-significant difference between BFR, no BFR. Um, but as far as protocol, you mentioned, um, as far as outputs, I guess, of the subjects, you mentioned, what was the total volume in sets compared between the two groups or sets and reps? I know the sets were all four, but it reps. Yeah. So the sets were all four. Um, if I remember correctly, so the control trial averaged around like 42 something like that 42 reps and again like th this is something i need to go back and look at the exact number i'm just kind of mentally pulling numbers here but the bfr group was our bfr trial was like 20 20 reps total across and we're talking about 75 percent of one rm right like something that you should easily be able to pump out under normal conditions well over 20 reps with with that across four sets, right? So that to, to me, it was it was kind of staggering how fatigued people became with this, how how fatigue inducing BFR was, which makes sense, right? You're cutting off blood flow and accumulating st metabolic stress and whatnot. But yeah, and that was what I was saying though. The IL six was elevated, the, slightly the elevated. Was, it was higher by a significant margin in BFR, even though it was only half the work. Gotcha. So which which was that kind of glimmer of hope that, hey, something here is going on, right? Let's pursue this. So, And you mentioned that, so the first set, they were roughly equivalent in reps. Um, yeah. Uh, huge drop off in the second set. But then when you allowed them to deflate between the second and third set, it picked up. Am I recalling that? It picked up dramatically, like to the point where if I remember, there's no significant difference between control and BFR during that third set total repetitions. Hmm. It makes you yeah. wonder if, you know, there's a lot of research on intermittent versus, you know, continuous BFR. I, I, you wonder if, you know, because if you would, if you could capture some benefits from being included during the set uh, and then just allow your, allow it to deflate between sets uh, to where it doesn't impact total work. Um, yeah. I wonder if there may be some benefit there. Well, so I know there's a lot of protocols out there, um, and it's been through various authors. Um, none of my research, um, I'll, I'll admit that, but um, there, there is a lot of research that's already been laid down, kind of comparing during the set only, during the rest period only, and then during the whole thing, right? And it's been kind of suggested already that if you're only going to pick one or the other, pick a clue during the actual rest period. 
to maximize the effect. Because, right, you're building up all this metabolic stress during the actual exercise, and then you occlude and keep it all in. I get, I mean, which to me makes sense, right? Versus you're building it up while you're working out, but then deflate to allow it to all clear out. That's where you do see a bit of a loss there, right? Mm. Um, so I, I'm, you know, looking at this, uh, the, there's a little bit of literature that shows that kind of what, what I did, and that's why I designed the protocol the way I did, is occlusion during and during the exercise and rest is a little bit better than one or the other, right? So maximizing that, of course, like I said, I deflated between the third and fourth sets um, just because, you know, that was to me the ideal place to deflate to kind of stick to that six to eight minute time frame window without, you know, again, we're, it's still early on. I don't want to kill anybody in my lab. <laughs> I definitely want to avoid that. I don't want any, any cardiac events, no, nothing that could cause any harm to a participant. I want to make sure none of that happens, right? So I'm, I'm playing it cautiously until I know otherwise yeah. um, with that kind of research. What are your thoughts on, and this, I fully appreciate this is going to be uh, just purely hypothesis here, um, but the elevated IL-6 and roughly equivalent myoglobin, um, <laughs> despite the fact that, as you mentioned, you know, maybe it's not exact numbers, but something like 40 plus reps for the control group and only 20-ish reps, like to a, the, a lot less work, similar uh, inflammatory response or, or muscle damage potential response. Yeah, so for me, I look at this, and I, I do think, you know, there, there is some validity to looking further into the muscle damage aspect. Um, there would be a biological markers or looking at uh, changes in, uh, uh, you know, muscle quality post-exercise via ultrasound, something of that nature. Um, I, I think there's definite validity there, and I think it's worth pursuing because I don't think we know yet, is BFR increasing damage? I don't think the answer is there. It makes sense that it might, obviously not through mechanical strain. It's not really doing too much. It's just this kind of pliable cuff that's around the limb. And yeah, it's including blood flow, but its implications on the muscle, I feel like in that case are kind of minimal, but you are enhancing reactive oxygen, right? That's already been kind of suggested. You are increasing metabolic stress, increased membrane fragility, things like that, that can result at, you know, that can come as a result of enhancement of those factors. So, I think it's worth pursuing that and still looking into, right? I don't think the research is even, not even mine, is even remotely conclusive on that. I do think that the interleukin-6, elevated interleukin-6, is very promising. Um, same with kind of like the lactate, right? Same lactate, half the amount of work. Um, interleukin-6 elevated with half the amount of work, right, compared to control. So to me, these are, these are factors, right, metabolic stress, inflammation, right, inflammatory signaling mechanisms that, again, IL-6 has, you know, through all the literature I've read and kept up with to the best I can, um, appears to have pretty big ramifications when it comes to satellite cell activation and pro proliferation, right? So um, I feel like pursuing this, I feel like there's definite reason to pursue this type of research for me to continue this. Um, because I think it's very promising as far as its ability to potentially enhance, you know, maybe not even hypertrophy, but other factors, angiogenesis, things of that, you know, mitochondrial density, things like that, that we could eventually hopefully look into. Yeah, I think the, the potential favorable uh, increase in um, satellite cell activity is interesting. Can you can you break down satellite cells for us? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So satellite cells are these, I kind of describe them to my students when I'm talking to them about it, is kind of these like semi-differentiated semi stem cells 
that are kind of co-localized in the basement membrane um, with the skeletal muscle fibers, right? There's the muscle fiber in the basement membrane. They're kind of hanging out there in what they call this kind of uh, dormant quiescent state, right? Where they, they're just there, they're quiet, they're not doing anything. Um, we just know they're there. We see these things. It's called, we see PAX7. That's a protein that satellite cells express. We know that they're there. We know that they're in the membrane, healthy, even inactive tissue. Satellite cells are there. And through a lot of research, we've shown that um, the role of satellite cells is to help with repair and hypertrophy, right? So they become active. Um, so upon activation, usually some sort of exercise-based signal, muscle damage, metabolic stress, inflammation, um, mechanotransduction, things like that, they become active. And then from there, they divide over and over and over again. And that's through a process we call proliferation. And then what happens is they fuse together. In the case of hypertrophy, they migrate inside of the cell, fuse together, and kind of differentiate and form this what we call like a new nucleus, a new nucleus inside of the cell. Um, so uh, to basically enhance myonuclear domain and protein capacity and th protein synthesis capacity and whatnot uh, of the actual cell, of the fiber, to allow for hypertrophy and growth of the fiber. So satellite cells are very critical kind of semi-differentiated stem cells that are really, really important for growth and repair of the cell, of the muscle fiber. Would it be fair to, to again, very rudimentary explanation, but refer to them almost as non-defined stem cells that are become more, have a more clear role when, when uh, stimuli like resistance training is brought in? Yeah, well, so stem cells, especially when you're talking about like pluripotent stem cells, right? are these cells that can become a multitude of different cell types in the body, right? It can become um, lymphocytes, macrophages, so on and so forth, right? Depending on the colony forming units they form and things like that. But these are kind of preset. There's they're stages later and they're kind of predetermined to become something to do with skeletal muscle. The other concept other than like a new, a new myonucleus is the ability of them to fuse together outside of the cell and form a new fiber. So like the idea of hyperplasia versus hypertrophy. Now, again, hyperplasia is just speculated in humans. You know, again, we're basing a lot of this stuff in humans off of a muscle biopsy that big in the vastus lateralis, you know, which even in animal models where hyperplasia has been shown, it's two to 6% of total growth and total, you know, you know, development and all that. So, you know, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. So the idea of finding it's very low to begin with, but um, that that's the other kind of idea that happens with satellite cells is kind of fusion into a new fiber um, to induce hyperplasia. But again, in humans, highly speculative. We have no idea. Um, so far, the research says no, but again, we're looking for a needle in a haystack, right? So may or may not find that. <laughs> the increase uh the myonuclear domain increase that's sort of downstream from that uh whether or not hyperplasia is still tbd but uh increasing the actual size of a single muscle cell hypertrophy of the muscle cell is highly dependent on the myonuclear domain correct yes um so the myonuclear domain right now the theorized um like kind of ceiling, at least the hypothetical ceiling for myonuclear domain is around 2,000, um, 2000 square micrometers, something like that inside of the fiber. And so that's been one of those things that's been shown to kind of, again, I, I don't know if it's a which came first, like the chicken or the egg type of thing, right? Is it that 
reaching that ceiling that stimulates new myonucleus formation or the opposite, right? Is it we stimulate it so that way it can keep growing, right? One way or the other. I, I don't know that the research is too definitive on that. And at this point, I'm getting a, li a little outside of what I know a ton about. Like I know about it, but not, you know, not to any extreme level. So there's probably somebody out there that could talk about this way more in depth than I can. But um, the, the idea is ultimately we are stimulating um, this, this growth of a new nucleus um, and, and we do have this theorized ceiling that it can get up to before we need another nucleus to be able to support it. And it makes sense, right? Your nuclei are um, used to increase genics, or, you know, to help with gene transcript production, which is ultimately used to make a new protein in the ribosome, things like that, right? So if you don't have enough gene transcript production and enough protein synthesis subsequently from that, you're not going to be able to support and maintain that fiber or that the size of that fiber. So that's why you know, it's postulated that we need these enhanced nuclear numbers and the muscle fibers we're training. I'm, uh, I've been running, running down rabbit holes, picking your brain here. Uh, it's good, man. I like it. I love this. So I'm going to ask <laughs> one more question along similar, similar, uh, I guess, esoteric lines, which is, um, but, and then I want to get back to your, your, what you're working on currently. Um, but I, I was curious before talking to you, I've kind of thought about self swelling, um, and as a, as a potential uh, stimuli of, of muscle growth and it, just wondering if you've read anything, I haven't come across anything, but if, if you're aware of any literature around maybe a potential ceiling for self swelling. So I would assume that um, the, like the benefit that we would get from self swelling is going to be exacerbated during BFR training because we've got literally no venous return. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder if, if, um, if the upper end, if we can, if we can't fully maximize that upper end range of the benefit from cell swelling, unless BFR is brought into the equation, I don't know. It's just a, a curiosity thing that I have. I don't know if you've read any literature around that. Yeah. I mean, so that, and that's one of the theorized mechanisms of BFR, right? Is that enhancement of cell swelling, right? You increase those metabolite accumulation, right? And those are the cell, you draw in fluids, things like that. You're talking about acute hypertrophy, acute swelling of the cell, right? Um, theoretically, I would say even when you're, even, well, in that most recent research article that we just published that I said came out a few days ago, um, in there, we even show that with BFR high intensity, the group, the, the, the trial where we use BFR, uh, the muscle was the muscle tissue was more swollen. You had a greater muscle thickness, right? So we're still talking about even high resistance training, right? Your, uh, you know, high force production, things like that. And there's been a lot of research out there that's shown that BFR enhances it even when you're doing high repetitions, right? So you are increasing cell swelling, and I think to maximize that capacity, the ability to signal via cell swelling and cause enhanced protein synthesis, yeah, BFR might be required um, in some capacity, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is an important aspect, and I, I think what you stated is completely valid. I think that to reach that ceiling, we, we do have to have some sort of artificial inclusion, right, um, be it mechanical or whatever. Very interesting. Well, what, what's, what's on the, the future roadmap? What excites you in the world of BFR, whether it's something that you see other people working on or you're working on or anything like that? Yeah, so my like I said, my whole research agenda is saying – the clinical aspect is fantastic, and I think it's great. I mean, I know PT clinics, OT clinics use it to help patients recover faster, things like that, because they can't use high loads, and that's phenomenal. 
But for me, I look at this and say, I think there's other avenues. I think there's greater applications, right? Other than saying, oh, do this low, high, like low intensity, high number of repetitions with BFR. I, I, and again, we know that's effective. So where do we go from here? Is it effective at the high intensity? And um, kind of seeing where that can go from this point is what I'm interested in. That's what drives me, right? Is again, I've got, so I actually have a longitudinal study currently going on looking at this. Um, again, not extremely longitudinal. It's just a, talking about four week, nothing extreme, but um, the looking at potential changes in strength, things of that nature, looking at some markers of anaerobic capacity, things like that to see, is it changing anything even after just four weeks of PFR training, right? Um, so I got a study going on with that. And then where can it go from there, right? So if it, it, you know, if it is effective at high intensity, right, maybe somewhere in the middle, or even if it's not effective at high intensity, maybe there's this middle ground, right, where more practical application when I think about special populations and things of that nature, right? Like I said, I'm a, um, developing a project right now we're kind of looking at, I, you know, not to talk about it to, to death because, again, I don't want to, you know, throw everything out there, but starting to do some work with firefighters potentially with it, right, as a ability of enhancing performance. And I just I think there's a lot of room there that um, that could that could really that could really help that population, especially when it comes to um, just performance on the job. So not not even just them, right? Potentially law enforcement officers and construction workers and whoever it is that has these high you know potentially either high risk or high demand you know um, line of duty tasks, right? For a police officer, or a firefighter, or something like that. In the case of construction worker, right, you're talking about bouts of really high intensity lifting and moving things. They have back issues, right? And helping to, you know, improve that strength and endurance balance um, could alleviate a lot of that. And that, that's where I'm kind of wanting to go from here is take it more to this, how, how do we use this to help people uh, outside of the clinic, right? So that, that's kind of my next in line, what I'm, what I'm currently working with. Well, I'll be super excited, curious to watch and how everything evolves. And, and I know the listeners of the podcast will as well. Is there anything that, that we missed that you wanted to touch on before, before we wrap up here? Um, not in particular, okay. uh, not, not that I can really think of. Um, do you have anything else for me that I can answer or talk about? Uh, for the sake of, uh, me going down much more insane <laughs> rabbit holes. I'll, I'll cut it off here, but that was, um, all right. that this has been a pleasure and like, it's a, it's a, it's a great to have an opportunity to talk with somebody at your level of expertise and who's had this exposure to BFR and, um, obviously the educational background to be able to communicate things in depth, but also simply for, for the audience and for me. So thank you for your time. No problem. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on here. I always love doing stuff like this. So yeah, it's a, it's an honor. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll bring it back for round two if you're up for it. All right. Sounds good. Keep me in mind. Cool. Thanks. Lee. All right.